Okay, everybody, open up your Bibles. Today we're in Mark chapter 11, and we're going to be looking today at verses 12 to 25. And Ross, this is the part of Scripture where uh, Jesus is going to go to the temple, but before he goes to the temple, he's going to curse a fig tree, then he goes to the temple, then at the end of the story, he goes by that fig tree again. So that's kind of where we're going today. And and really that what we're going to see today, the reason we're bunching all of this together is because, because Jesus, I think, relates a f- this fruitless fig tree to the greatest symbol of religion in the Jewish faith, which is the temple. And in the process, he's going to redefine the role of the temple in the Christian faith. So here we are today, our listeners today, if they go to a Christian church, they, they've never gone to a temple probably. They don't worship at a temple, they go to a church building. They worship with other believers. We don't have temples today, but they had temples in the Old Testament. They had temples in Jesus's day. Judaism did, but Christianity doesn't have temples, and we're going to talk about why. Today, today's topic is going to get us there, but maybe we should start with a little history lesson. Ross, help us to understand, well, first of all, what, what was the temple all about? You'll probably have to explain the tabernacle too. In the Old Testament, what was that all about? The temple was a permanent edifice. The tabernacle was temporary, leading up to the building of the temple. The whole point of it was, God says to his people, he's bringing them out of Egypt, out of slavery. He's going to create a nation for himself and give them a land in which they're going to live. And so the tabernacle on uh, Mount Sinai, God initiated this whole element of worship that would be characterized by his people. He said, this is how you're going to worship me. And the, the Book of Exodus uh, describes the description of that temple, and the temple is going to be a place where people could approach God. The people of God could approach God. It represented the presence of God in the midst of His people, but they could only approach God because of we are sinful persons. Human beings have sinful traits and tendencies. We could only approach God on the basis of having our sin atoned for, sacrifices. So the sacrifices were made at the temple. Ritual sacrifices that took place at certain key times every year, but also whenever somebody sinned, they could bring a sacrifice to the temple in order to restore a relationship with God and and enter into intimacy with God again through the sacrificial system. Once Israel got settled in their, their land, it was again, it was several hundred years before King David said, we're going to build a temple, we're going to have a permanent edifice for God in the capital city, and his son Solomon was the one who actually built that. And so that that place was the central focal point of the worship of Israel then for centuries. And so when we say there were temples, there was never more than one, but there was a succession of temples because that temple was destroyed by the Babylonian conquest. And so then a few hundred years later, then a, a, a ne- the next temple was built by King Herod. It was built in the same location after the same model, and that's the temple that was standing during the time of Jesus. Solomon's temple was no longer there. Herod's temple was there when uh, Jesus was on the scene. What had happened over time, and what we see in the Gospels, is that there's this core function of offering sacrifice to God for sin— but also what has happened over time, and by the time we get to Jesus, is that there had been a whole institution built up around the temple, and the temple leadership were the spiritual leaders of Israel, and they were in control of how that was going to happen, 
And, uh, you know, and it became sort of, um, I guess you could say, it became institutionalized. And so there were some things that it was still legit in the sense that this is what God set up, and, um, but, it, but it had become corrupted in some ways. Um, and when Jesus came, then what we're going to see today in this passage is that there's some radical changes that are coming to the temple worship. Okay, so let me let me summarize. So the temple, is it fair to say, Ross, that the temple, when, when, we, when we say it was a place of worship, it was a central place of worship, really the greatest symbol of religion for the Jewish faith, worship really is about having proper relationship with God. So when you said there were sacrifices and there was all kinds of stuff that I think modern Christians would be like, what the heck? <laughs> Just go read Leviticus and you'll see what we're talking about. The Levites were the priests in the temple. And there were there were all these rituals that, that really sort of represented this distance between people and God because of people's sin. But, but God's goal all along was to have relationship with his people. So what what kept screwing that up? Why did why was it so difficult for for God's people to have a relationship with him? Well, God's people have always been, you know, hard-hearted. There's a there's the issue of sin within our lives. We we want to pursue other things besides God. And so the, in the Old Testament period, the the temple ritual uh, was undermined by the interest of people in pursuing other gods and other other gods in their temples or the surrounding people and surrounding gods. And ultimately also people, the tendency that human beings have to uh, be selfish and to be sel- to practice self-interest, all that began to enter into the temple worship as well. And so ultimately, um, this is why, why God introduced a whole new uh, regime of things after the temple was destroyed, then he says, "Look, to obey my law, I'm going to have to put my Holy Spirit in you, and I'll give you the Spirit of God to so you could do all the things that I think worship would be not only drawing near to God, but living in obedience to God and following God's will and honoring Him in every way, but also having this intimate relationship with Him, as you said, all that all those things that were um, represented by the temple." were hindered by the fact that human beings, including the people of God, are just infected by this problem of, of sin. We'd want to go our own way instead of God's way. But it's, I think it's important for our listeners to hear, especially for people who are listening to this who are sort of seeking, they're dipping their toe in the water, they're not sure what they think about this whole Christianity thing. Maybe they found our podcast, they've been going through the Gospel of Mark with us. I think it's important for you listeners, if I just described you, to understand that the temple, the original intent of the temple was not institutional. Mm -hmm. Like you said, Ross, it became institutionalized. And that's where it kind of got gummed up by the time of Jesus's day, as we're going to see as we read through the, you know, the gospel of Mark chapter 11, that he, he wasn't, Jesus wasn't so happy with how things were going at the temple. We're going to see that today. God's point all along was to have a relationship with his people. Now, proper relationship with God means he's on the throne, we're not. Proper relationship with God means he gets to call the shots, we don't. And so, but at the very beginning, that was God's heart. He, he kept, you know, there's this phrase over and over we find in the Old Testament where God says, I want to be your God and I want you to be my people. That was his heart. His heart is relationship. His heart isn't 
um, I don't know, religion maybe is the word. His heart is an institutional religion. That's not his heart. Because I think a lot of people, when they think about church or religion or whatever, and the temple is like the ultimate picture of that. When they think about that, they they get this idea that God is is mean, that God is only about rules and laws. And I think it's you could you could read the Bible through that lens, but I think you'd be missing it. the The better lens to read the Bible through is the lens of relationship that God wants relationship with His people. He, but but that relationship has to be on His terms, not on our terms. And because people are so sinful, we we couldn't have that relationship. So we see that story just repeated over and over and over in the Old Testament. So. The tabernacle at first was like the temporary temple, and then, you know, in Moses's day, and then finally, in David and Solomon's day, Solomon was finally able to build a permanent place for God, but then, of course, that permanent place got, like you said, got destroyed a few hundred years later. Herod's temple gets rebuilt. That's the temple in Jesus's day, but I guess how would you say... How would you say things were going in Jesus's day compared to, let's say, when Solomon first built the temple? Well, a lot had happened in Jewish history from that point in time. And so there were different movements taking place. There was a movement toward Hellenization, which is the influence of Greek culture uh, after, after Alexander the Great. And in response to that, there was a reform movement that said, hey, we need to get back to basics, and, and we're going to really take God's law super seriously. And, but that reform movement went kind of, it lost it, its heart. It became kind of like the rule, the rule builders. And so sometimes when things are chaotic or, or people aren't really following the kind of the, the lifestyle outline for them, then the, then the rule keepers come in and they try to fix it. And it becomes then its own problem, right? It's too many rules and too many heartless things, and that's what that's what the Pharisaical uh, aspect of Judaism. That was the leadership of Judaism that that had uh, emerged by the time that Jesus came. They said, "We're going to tell you exactly what God wants," and they took all of His God's law and they added, you know, hundreds of of reg- regulations to it. It became external only. It became super focused on outward activity and not on the heart, which is what God God wanted in the first place was heart, people who had a heart for him, who wanted to know him. But, but this kind of religion in Jesus' day, as a way of trying to address the, the other excesses on the other side, it went too far to say, hey, we're going to start to define a relationship with God now in terms of simply external religious activity. And that was kind of what Jesus was, was facing. And it wasn't just the, it wasn't mainly the people that Jesus was upset with. It was the leadership, Mm -hmm. right? It was the Jewish leadership. And we we see that just throughout the gospel of Mark. So the question that we're going to answer by the end of today's topic, as we get into this passage is why don't Christians worship in temples today? Now it might seem like a pretty basic question, but now that we've given an introduction to temples, a place where God dwelled. It was a place where you could get right with God, right, in the Old Testament. And, and we're going to see that, well, the the role of the temple in Christianity today is obviously different. Um, Christians who are listening to this don't ever go to a temple. By the way, Mormons do have a temple. So if we do have any Mormons listening to this today, keep listening. 
because I think this might be a real eye-opening topic for Mormons. Ross, a lot of Mormons today consider themselves Christians, and this is this is really a, a, a topic that will help you to understand a more biblical approach or understanding of temples and temple worship and all that stuff. But anyway, yeah. let's get to the text and and let's see what Jesus what Jesus has to say about all this. Mark chapter eleven verses twelve to fourteen. It says the next morning. As the disciples were leaving Bethany, so remember, Jesus and his disciples were were heading down to Jerusalem, at where the temple was. It says that Jesus was hungry, and he noticed a fig tree in full leaf a little way off. So he went over to see if he could find any figs, but there were only leaves because it was too early in the season for fruit. And so Jesus said to the tree, may no one ever eat your fruit again. And the disciples heard him say it. Let's pause here for a second, because Ross, this is one of the most difficult stories in the Gospels to make sense of, because it seems unreasonable that Jesus would curse a fig tree when it's not supposed to even have figs yet. We'll explore what's going on with that in a minute, why that happened. But just to set the set the uh, scenario here, uh, the fig tree is going to bear fruit in typically in June in this climate and so forth. So now it's about March. It's like late March probably because this is Passover week. And so the fig tree is going to have a lot of leaves at that time, and uh, but no fruit. And then June, it's going to have a lot of leaves and it's going to have fruit. And so you have to understand, this is not just Jesus being like upset or angry about this poor fig tree, this poor uh, innocent fig tree, but if we look at where this story fits in the overall arrangement of things, so Mark brings it up here, then he talks about Jesus' interaction with the temple, and then it's the very next thing after that is he talks about the fig tree again. So it's, uh, it's bracketing the story that is of our, of our interest to us. So it could not make sense out of it, out of what's going on here. And Mark says, Mark points out it was too early in the season for fruit. Well, that helps us as the as the listener, the reader, to understand that we should look beyond the surface meaning of what's going on here and see, oh, well, there must be something else going on here. There must be some symbolic or some some meaning that's not just about Jesus being hungry and not getting satisfied with what he wants to do. But when you look at the overall context, we're saying, oh, this is so closely related to how Jesus treats the temple that it makes sense that not as a standalone story. But in, in this larger narrative, that it, there's some relationship between what he's doing with the fig tree and what he's doing with the temple. Now, this is the only miracle in all four Gospels that's a miracle of destruction. Every other miracle, Jesus is healing, he's, he's creating things, right? The miracle of the loaves and fish, he's walking on water. Th- this miracle stands alone. In fact, maybe some people don't even think of this as a miracle, but it is. It's It's... Something happens here that should not have happened. Um, it goes against the laws of nature. So it is a miracle, but it's a it's a weird miracle. What I guess the question you might ask Ross is why didn't Jesus use his divine power instead of for destruction? Why didn't he like force a crop of figs out of season? You know, that might have been right. a cooler, more appropriate thing to do. On the surface of it, that would seem more fitting with the things that Jesus was using his divine power to accomplish. He was healing people. He was creating creating good out of a bad situation. But 
the fact is we look at this in the light in large in light of the larger things that were happening that day and the very next day uh, with respect to the temple and Jesus relationship with Judaism and all the, the uh, leadership of Judaism and all the rest then it becomes something that takes on this meaning that none of the other miracles had and and we'll explore what that meaning is okay so mark that in verse 15 now Mark moves away from the fig tree. So we just, like you said, it's going to be bracketed. We'll come back to that here in just a little bit. But we have this little picture of him cursing the fig tree. And then he just moves on. Verse 15 says, when they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. And he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. And he said to them, the scriptures declare my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. And when the leading priests and teachers of religious law heard what Jesus had done, they began planning how to kill him, but they were afraid of him because the people were so amazed at his teaching. So Ross, what's going on here? We never talked about any of this stuff in the temple. So what's this is Herod's temple and it's a marketplace now. It's not a place of worship. What's going on? Actually, it was a place of worship, but the marketplace was supporting the worship because by now, the people of Israel had, had been dispersed throughout the ancient world. And so they're coming back. It's Passover week. And so P- Passover was like homecoming. People would come back to their homeland during Passover, and then they would take care of the Passover ritual on behalf of their family. And so Passover week, there was a lot of sacrifice, a lot of these sacrificial acts in the temple taking place, um, as prescribed by the Old Testament. Um, In response to Passover was a response to God's great work to save Israel out of their slavery in Egypt and bring them out. And so that's a, a picture of a larger salvation. But people had to come back to Jerusalem from not just Palestine, but Jewish people were living all over the Mediterranean world. So they would come back. It was impractical to bring animals with you. And the animals had to prove to be kosher. They had to meet the the regulations for animals that were uh, offered as sacrifice. They had to be pure and so forth. And so, so to bring a kosher animal and have it um, tested by the officials that was quite cumbersome if you didn't live in the in the vicinity. And so it was in a sense it was a service to set up a place where people could buy kosher animals for their sacrifices. Now the the problem with that with that service is that you know it had people were charging exorbitant amounts of money to so like okay I'd look at it like this it's like when you go to a, a baseball game or a, or a basketball game, and you order a hot dog. Well, it's going to cost you five times as much as a hot dog outside because you have a you know they have a captive audience, and so that's what's happening here. They have a captive audience, people who need this service, and they're being gouged for it. And so uh, there was money. The money, the temple tax, had to be paid in a certain currency, and so the exchange rates were exorbitant. If you brought your whatever your money was from you know some other part of the empire, you'd bring it in, exchange it. And you're being gouged for that as well. And so it was initially a service that helped worship happen, but it became, you know, a real, a real racket for people who are making money off of it. Now we saw last week the 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 first messianic act during the week 
was the triumphal entry, that that was predicted in the Old Testament. Jesus is the Messiah. Part of what we're learning in the Gospel of Mark is he is the readers, along with the disciples, are learning more and more that Jesus is the Messiah and what that actually means, that he's the Messiah. It's not this, it's not this picture of, a, of an earthly warrior like David who's going to come and establish a, you know, a Jewish rule in spite of the Romans, you know, destroying the Romans. It's something different than that. Jesus keeps trying to tell his disciples what that's about. But in this passage, we see the second messianic act of the week because... Jesus is fulfilling Malachi 3, verses 1 through 3. I'm going to read that. This is an Old Testament prophecy. And and just notice how similar this is to what we're reading here in Mark 11. Malachi wrote, Look, I am sending my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Then the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you look for so eagerly is surely coming, says the Lord of heaven's armies. But who will be able to endure it when he comes? Who will be able to stand and face him when he appears? For he will be like a blazing fire that refines metal, or like a strong soap that bleaches clothes. He will sit like a refiner of silver, burning away the dross. He will purify the Levites, remember those were the priests, refining them like gold and silver, so that they may once again offer acceptable sacrifices to the Lord." Ross, do you think that Jesus understood Malachi 3 when he was going into the temple this day? Yeah, I think he did. Um, he, he acted with a great a deal of, I guess what you could say, awareness of his messianic ministry. And he, and he was certainly versed with the Old Testament um, scriptures completely. And so, yeah, I think he did understand it that way. The question, I don't think people understood maybe that's what was going on, because people looked at that and say, oh, someday God is going to deal with it, right? But they didn't know that God had in mind to deal with it today, you know, in their lifetime or in their era. And so um, this is great because it does give us some perspective now, starting to build perspective on the fig tree that the fig tree parallel, um, the fig tree showed a lot of outward leaves but didn't have fruit. The Israel showed a lot of outward leaves, so to speak, all their religious activity, including especially the temple, but they didn't show real fruit. They didn't show the things that God was looking for. And so there's this moment of judgment. Actually, I think, you know, this, is, uh, this passage has been often called the cleansing of the temple. And... Um, there's a sense, based on Malachi, there's a sense that that is what's, what's going on here. But if you look at the bigger picture, and you look at what happens, what Jesus says in chapter 13, and what happens you know, shortly after, within the generation after Jesus, it wasn't a cleansing so much. It wasn't a reform of the temple. It was a judgment of the temple. And it, beto- it tokened the idea that you know, something was going to change in God's economy of things. Yeah, it's interesting that Jesus is being prophetic here. He's, you know, Jesus was almost like a like an Old Testament, he's certainly more than that, but he's like an Old Testament prophet. And sometimes the prophets would do more than make announcements. Jesus isn't it's like this is a word picture for him here. He didn't have to turn the tables over and create a scene. But he's, it's almost like he's kind of like some cases in the Old Testament where the prophets would use actions to communicate mm-hmm. God's message to the people. Is that, is that partly what's going on here, Ross? It seems to be because, I mean, the prophets, 
that was part of a prophetic ministry is they take these actions. Ezekiel's a great example of that, and other prophets too. They would tear something or they would, you know, um, do something that got people's attention as part of the message that they were communicating. So that this seems definitely to be in in keeping with that prophetic tradition um, that he's that he's graphically acting out something that God intends toward the temple. Maybe and and you know. And we've always thought about this, at least I have, always thought about this in terms of Jesus correcting the abuses, but it could, it seems like it's more than that. It seems, again, like I mentioned, that he's actually dealing with the very temple practice itself, which is, would be a really radical thing. And we'll, we'll see more about that as we go forward. One more thing in this passage, Ross, I think we need to explain is the quote from the Old Testament. Jesus says, my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. If you're reading that in Mark 11, there, that's in quotes, because he's quoting from Isaiah 56. So there's a, there's a prophecy in Isaiah 56, and the whole thing was about other nations. My temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. So explain this, Ross, because the the Herod's temple and even Solomon's temple the temple was really just a place for Jewish people. It's very restrictive. Like only certain Jews could be in the outer courts, and then and then getting closer and closer to the Holy of Holies, it it was more and more and more restrictive. But isn't it true that the whole thing, at least the way that the Pharisees and Sadducees and even Jesus's disciples in this story would have thought of the temple as a Jewish thing? So what is Jesus talking about? when he says it's supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. And it's not just Jesus talking about it. Apparently, Isaiah is prophesying it. So are they missing something here? Is this partly what Jesus is trying to explain? Yeah, I think this is a big part of what Jesus' point is that day. Because originally, you know, the temple was, a like we said at the beginning, it was a representation of God's relationship with his people. And God specifically chose Israel among, he says, among all the nations of the earth, I chose you. You weren't great, you weren't powerful, whatever, but I chose you. And so it's there is an insider element to it as they're experiencing that. And he says, don't go after the gods of the other nations, you know, be faithful to me. But what was always envisioned was that this would become, it would grow to become more and more inclusive. And that became very clear by the time you get to Isaiah, where Isaiah's prophesying where all the nations are going to come to the temple. The nations are going to come and bow down and worship real, the real God instead of their own false gods. And so the way Solomon's temple and then Herod's temple was built was that there was a court outside or within the temple perimeter, but outside of the holiest parts where the Gentiles could come. And it was called Court of the Gentiles court or Court of the Nations. And so people would come and it was a house of prayer. It was intended to be a house of prayer, even though maybe the outsiders could not participate initially in that sacrifice, yet they could still come and approach God um, in, in a way that was meaningful. And so, and again, we'll see how that, be, you know, what, what Jesus did to, to change everything about approaching God, but the temple meant, it meant something that was going to happen in the future, but it was symbolic of Jesus' ministry. But this court of the Gentiles then, that became the place where 
the, sh- the shop was set up. They'd, in other words, the leaders of Judaism at the time, they didn't care about whether the Gentiles got any turf at all or had any approach at all. It was just us. And then they said, oh, what's more important for us is to make sure that we've got a place that generates income, and we're going to do that on the, at the price of these Gentiles being able to come and worship God, even though they were only at a distance at the time. Now, Christians today, we don't we don't think of it in terms of Jews and Gentiles because we're not Jewish. Most Christians aren't Jewish, so we don't have this sort of nationalistic pride. But I guess for the Christians listening, maybe this is a good it's a good time to stop and think about your own experience in church. Maybe you're a leader at church. I think maybe an equivalence could be not so much about money. I mean, hopefully you don't you know you don't set up a market at your church and try to make money and and charge exorbitant prices for things for hot dogs and things at church but maybe you can think about the people that you that you don't welcome to your church maybe the the outsiders because because I think there are two elements in this passage of scripture Ross that God really wanted from his people that Jesus is trying to explain through this through these actions, more than his words, but even his actions. First, we've already said this, he wanted, he wanted people to have a heart for him. It's not about, um, it's not about r- empty rituals, it's not about religious action, it's about a relationship with God. Remember, that was what the temple was supposed to be about in the first place, is where he could be God, you, we could be his people. So first of all, it's about having a heart. But second, really, it's about having a heart for outsiders. So it's not just about having a heart for God. It's about having a heart for people. Really, it's kind of like what how Jesus summarized the, the Old Testament law when the Pharisees said, what's the most important law? He said, love God and then love your neighbor as yourself. It's kind of like that's what he's trying to communicate is you, you're missing, you're really missing your relationship with God. And then probably as a result, you're missing your relationship with outsiders and God's relationship with outsiders. It's like you're keeping outsiders from having a relationship with God, which he wants. That's really a great point to make, Brian, to, to call us to back to those fundamental issues. And I think today, I think the question of insiders and outsiders, I think is still relevant because we have this kind of internal Christian culture that we get. And, and so how do we, the outsider comes in and we're all dressed up on our Sunday best in, in a lot of, in a lot of church cultures. And, you know, the outsider doesn't know they're supposed to dress up. Now that's not true in the church that we're in. We're all pretty casual, but it can be true in a lot of areas and has been true for some time Or the outsider doesn't know the customs that we have, you know, that like the, the particular little practices that we have, even with our worship, even with our order of, of service and so forth. So the outsider, are, what are we doing to help them to be welcome? What are we doing to help them to not have to live up to some kind of less than biblical code? you know, to, in order to be uh, given an opportunity to approach God. And so it's, you know, so we can, we can drift into this, you know, not thinking about it, probably in two, in two specific terms. We're not thinking, oh, let's do something that keeps the outsider out. But we're not thinking about, um, oh, gosh, we've kind of like taken away the court of the Gentiles by doing this, some other things. And so what are some ways that in our churches that we could, um, you know, think about how we treat outsiders and whether or not and how we welcome them in. I think that's a good application for us today, since we don't really have temples anymore. 
Okay, so Mark then finishes this section of Scripture. And again, we see it all together as the same, uh, as one story. This is, you know, you, you mentioned he's bracketing this temple experience, the cleansing of the temple. He's bracketing it with the interaction with this fig tree. So verse 19 says that that evening, Jesus and his disciples left the city. And the next morning, as they passed the fig tree that he had cursed the day before, the disciples noticed it had withered from the roots up. So sure enough, you know, he cursed it, and the next day it's it's withered. Peter remembered what Jesus had said to the tree on the previous day, and he exclaimed, Look, Rabbi, the fig tree you cursed has withered and died. Ross, explain this. What, what is Mark getting at here? Okay, first of all, it'd be helpful for me to um, understand kind of the chronology a little bit so we are we kind of know where we're go- where we're at on sunday is the triumphal entry and then on monday jesus is staying outside of jerusalem in the suburb called bethany and on monday he comes in he curses the fig tree he deals with the temple abuses and so forth and then on this is now tuesday Tuesday morning, so he's gone back out to Bethany and back out to the place where they're staying. And on Tuesday they come in, and there's the fig, the fig tree now has been, you know, it, it's what Jesus said would happen would happen. And so the rest of the day, then there's a lot of a lot of things that take place that really help us understand even the fig tree. There's more things related to the temple. There's more things related to the leaders of Judaism and some things that Jesus says in in judgment over them. And so. Here, so here's this. Uh, this is setting the t- the tone for the whole day. Not only is it bracketing the 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 clearing of the temple, but it's also setting the tone for the whole day. Whatever happens in the next couple of chapters, and so Peter notices, oh, this fig tree has been completely destroyed. The fig tree. Jesus did not, you know, kind of reform the fig tree. This is it's down and out. It's completely withered. It's never going to bear figs again. And so, again, this is a picture of what is happening with Israel. You know, he, he predicts the judgment of the temple, um, the destruction of the temple in chapter 13. Um, you know, this, so that's why this is a miracle for a, a tree to, to shrivel so completely, there's no life left in it. And, and what it conveys is that, you know, there's something permanent that's going to happen, that this fig tree represents something permanent that's going to happen by the authority and power of Jesus in the life of Israel, and particularly the temple. And before we completely sort of land the plane on what that permanent thing is, let's finish a few more verses here in Mark 11. At the end of this, then Jesus said to his disciples, have faith in God. I tell you the truth, you can say to this mountain, may you be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and it'll happen but you must really believe it will happen and have no doubt in your heart. I tell you, you can pray for anything. And if you believe that you've received it, it will be yours. But when you're praying, first forgive anyone you're holding a grudge against so that your father in heaven will forgive your sins too. So Ross, it seems like we go from temple, um, you know, fruitless religion, to now, at the end of the story, Mark is putting a bow on this by talking about two things, faith and forgiveness. So maybe you can kind of connect the dots for us. 
Well, in, in terms of the larger picture, what's going on here, he's saying, look, here's something about this temple type of worship. There's something about what Judaism had become, this institutional thing that has missed what we've been talking about. Love, you know, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. That that has somehow been lost in the structure and in the function of, of the Jewish practices. So Jesus is bringing it home here. He says, look, so the immediate the immediate uh, application, they say, look, the fig tree, oh my gosh, look what happened to it. And Jesus says, look, let's talk about the power of God. Let's talk about that for a minute. Um, if you want to see the power of God, then you have to act in faith. You pray in faith. You act in faith. And the mountain is an obstacle. It doesn't just mean that there's, they're probably standing on the Mount of, they're probably standing on the Temple Mount at that time. Maybe they're work, walking around the, the, the Mount of Olives coming in from Bethany. He's not saying literally this mountain is going to be you know, moved, but he said an obstacle in your life. That's the power of God. And, but he's saying that, okay, that's love God. You got to trust God, love him, care. You, know, you got to have some faith in what God can do. And then, and then the second part, forgiveness, is love your, your neighbor as yourself. These are not just kind of random statements that Jesus could have said anytime. He probably said them at other times. But what these are, are ways of, of redirecting the soul, the heart of Judaism, away from this external um, religion back to the original things that God cared the most about. And so in the context, they reveal this new order. They reveal this original order of, of Judaism, this idea of, of faith, this idea of forgiveness that takes the people right back to where God wanted them to start in the first place. I like how the NIV application commentary says it. We'll, we'll put a link to this, um, this quote down in the show notes today. The commentary says, These sayings are integrally related to context. They reveal the essence of the new order that replaces the old. The new order is based on faith, verse 22, that overcomes insurmountable odds, verse 23, is sustained by grace, verse 24, and is characterized by forgiveness verse 25. So so what Jesus is saying here, Ross, is that relationship with God is not, it never was actually, but it's not based on ritual sacrifices in the temple, but it's based on faith and forgiveness. Now, again, the disciples are, are going to learn that. They're going to continue to learn that. I'm sure that as the disciples thought back on this, at the mo- in the moment, I'm sure they didn't really connect all these dots like we're connecting right now. But as they look back on this, I'm sure they did. In fact, isn't it true, Ross, that probably by the time Mark wrote this gospel, the temple may have already been destroyed. So part of what is, when you really zoom out and think about what we're reading right here in the time that probably it was written, is that Mark is trying to let his readers know that the judgment of God that was predicted by Jesus here in verse 11, when he goes over there and overturns the tables and all that stuff, that, that it's actually come, come to pass, that judgment has come to pass, and that the temple then was no longer necessary for a real relationship with God, because maybe you can finish the history lesson on the temple. So whatever happened to Herod's temple, and what temple do we have, do the Jews have today? Yeah, there's there's no temple anymore. It was destroyed. You know, the best we can tell, Jesus is talking here. This is about 30 AD. And by 70 AD, within one generation, 
the Romans destroyed the temple. They completely tore it down. The temple was just leveled. And there's never been a temple since, since 70 AD. Everything Jesus said was fulfilled. And so the temple no longer could possibly be the, the heart of Jewish practice. And, and so where is God going to show up? How was God going to be present among his people? Where could we go to be reconciled to God and to have his forgiveness? All those things now are gone because the temple is gone. I think what the New Testament says, that Jesus is going to say, and the writers who of the New Testament who understood what Jesus was saying would say now that, first of all, in one level, Jesus himself fulfills everything the temple was. Jesus is our sacrifice. Jesus is our high priest. Jesus is our mediator who brings us into the presence of God. And then on a secondary level, the church, the people who follow Jesus and belong to him, we have become the temple in which the Holy Spirit now lives. And so there's some very radical change. And you know we're kind of used to it now, so we don't think of it as radical because we weren't there before. But when you look at it in light of uh, this episode, this period, it's a completely radical change of how God's dealing with his people. God's intentions and purposes have not changed. But the means by which he has accomplished them has now changed. The temple, in retrospect, never was the end-all and be-all. It was always looking forward to Jesus, who is the end-all and be-all of our relationship with God. Hebrews 10, and this is in the New Testament. So the author of Hebrews explains this so perfectly. He says this, Under the old covenant... The priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. Verse 12, but our high priest, talking about Jesus, offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. And then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. So the, the priest Ross of the old covenant would have to stand and minister all day long, but Jesus sat down. It, his, his work was done. Verse 13, there he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. For by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. And the Holy Spirit also testifies that this is so. For he says, this is the new covenant I will make with my people on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. And so the author of Hebrews is telling us two things. He's, he's telling us the role of Jesus in the new covenant, that Jesus did the work, that Jesus is the sacrifice. But then he's telling us the role of the Holy Spirit. You know, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit dwelled in the temple, and in the New Testament today... The Holy Spirit dwells in us. And that is why we don't have temples anymore. We, as Christians, we don't need temples because God has taken up residence in us. He says, I'll put my law on their hearts. I'll write them on their minds. So now we are the dwelling place. We are the temple of God. The Holy Spirit, who is God himself, takes up residence in each one of us. Yeah, and you know, I think for us, the application probably is this— that we could become involved in external religion, in institutional religion, just as easily as the Jews of Jesus' day could. 
And so we take a look at the practices. We take a look at how we approach going to church, how we approach the ministry that we're involved in and so forth. And is it all about um, loving God and loving other people? Or is it about something else? Is it about us getting something out of it? Is it about us doing our duty to God somehow? Or I think, so that's an application for us today is to say, hey, the lesson from the temple is, are we living out the heart that God asks for? And so are we bearing fruit? We can have a lot of leaves in terms of our religious activity and all the things we do every, every week and on Sunday and all the rest, but are we actually bearing fruit, the fruit of something that God really wants, which is a heart for him and a heart for others?